to my mind, is very insulting. It's a very, I mean, and I'm a preacher. But I, I frankly, I'd be insulted if I was not. And I'm kind of insulted on your behalf when I hear people act like that. I mean, it's this elitist mentality that's so common of liberals. I'm not saying every pastor who has this view is a liberal. That's not, not, not often the case. But, you know, the idea that, you know, the average scum person, he can't figure out how to spend his money. Let the government distribute it for him. He can't figure out how to educate his kids. Let the government educate his kids for him. I mean, th- this elitist mentality, the average person just can't manage his own life. He needs a king. He needs a ruler. Well, you know what? That may be true of a lot of people, but it's not true of the people of God. They're sheep of one shepherd, and he's a good shepherd, and he knows how to lead his sheep. And it's the rare case where a true Christian doesn't know how to follow Jesus. And when that's there, there are people that God sends who has a gift in leading that will help those people out. But God says, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done, since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day. Now, what's interesting here is, he goes on to say, you go ahead and give them what they want. But tell them what they're going to get. They're going to get someone who's going to take their money. He's going to take 10%. Isn't that interesting? He's going to take 10% of your money. It's interesting for two reasons. One is that was considered to be oppressive taxation. And most of us would love it if our government would only take 10% of our money. But the other thing is, it so resembles church government or once you've got it institutionalized, you've got a machine that needs to keep the gears oiled. You've got to have income. You've got to, well, I hate to use words that aren't gentle, but you have to extort it. Now, why is that word justified? Because most churches will tell you, if you don't pay your 10% to the local church that you attend, God will curse you. You'll be cursed by God. Because you're robbing God and he cannot help but curse those who rob God, according to Malachi. And therefore, by extortion, you, you set up a political structure church, eventually there's salaries to pay, there's a building to maintain, there's, you know, there's a, the machinery has to keep grease. You've got to raise the money somehow. You've got to put the pressure on. Now, before this happened, what did they do with the church money? They helped the poor. They did support the teachers, I'm sure. They, I mean, they, 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 each person was a steward of his own money before God. And it was his responsibility. It wasn't his responsibility just to hand it over to some, someone let them do all the thinking for him. It's true that there was this, uh, as far as the distribution to the people who were poor, initially in Jerusalem, the uh, apostles initially were given that, that charge until they found they couldn't do it well, and they appointed someone to do that. There's nothing wrong with having a group of deacons or something like that who are they have their finger on the pulse of what the needs of the church are more than I do. And I don't mind giving money to them to distribute. But, but the idea is once you get the institution, it's going to take your sons and your daughters, it's going to take your money, it's going to do things that God never really would have done. I mean, God would take your money, but He's entitled to it. The thing is, Israel wanted an institutional form of leadership that God didn't originally want them to have. And I think the church has followed the same course. I don't find anywhere that the elders that Paul appointed in the church were supposed to replace themselves with successors when they died. Uh, God could raise up new ones. But the only reason that we think of it that way is because we can't think of any other political authority than that kind. How do you maintain the political structure of the institution if you don't have constant persons in the office? Well, what if we said there was no office that was political in nature in the church? Now, if political authority means the authority in here is in the office, not in the character. The authority in here is 
the, the office holder is the one that you're supposed to do his will. The office holder, you know, has, there always has to be a person at office to keep the machine going. I personally think that's political, that's institutional, and I don't see uh, from the scriptures that that's how the early church ran. Now, I, it's obvious that I have problems with churches that do that, but I want to make something clear before I go any further, and that is I don't have as great a problem as it might seem. I, every church I've ever been in, and I would dare say probably this one too, is sub-perfect. Uh, you know, people say, what do you think about a church that has a woman pastor? Well, I don't, I don't approve of woman pastors. But I don't make it my goal to go out and, you know, bomb churches that have women pastors. Or pick it in front. That's between them and God. I believe that every church I've ever been to has something that's not perfect about it. A woman pastor is, I think, something that's very unperfect about a church. But maybe the churches I've been to have other things that are just as imperfect. I don't know. I don't make it my business. And I want to make this clear because it might seem different than this. I don't make it my business to go around and picket churches or complain about what they are doing. The reason I'm going into this is because I'm currently part of a church that's trying to decide what direction to go. And I would like to say that we can avoid some of the mistakes that have been made in church history by recognizing that there's been some assumptions that have prevailed since the days of Ignatius, if not before, and that, that are not, to my mind, desirable or biblical assumptions. Now, my, my, I'm not a leader. And, and the fellowship I attend does not have to do what I recommend. But I'm just here trying to say what I think the scriptures say, and, and if it goes another direction, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stay with the church. But I just, I just, uh, I think it's important for us to look at some of these things that we take for granted that I don't think are scriptural. I don't believe the word elder in the New Testament is so much a reference to a political office as it is a description of a certain class of individuals in the church who are older men in general. I believe that's why the word elder was used. I think the elders were mostly older men, maybe at least older Christians than most. And because of that, they knew the Word of God better, hopefully. They were better examples. They had more time to get it down, to get it right. And, uh, and their families were in order. And because of that, they were good men to point to and say, these are the guys who are going to teach you. These are the guys who are going to be an example to you. I don't think it was political. Now, let me just say this. The church I attend right now, and not all of you attend it, so I, I, that's why I said it that way. The church I currently attend does not have any appointed leadership. I don't know if the church will have any appointed leadership. It might at some time in the future. It might not. Uh, I hope it will not need to. But but if it does, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not saying there's never any place for it. But I would say this: the church I attend does not lack leadership. There's plenty of leadership. There's no shortage of men who go up into that pulpit and they speak the word of God faithfully. And their lives in general, as far as I know them, their lives are pretty good examples to the flock. And as near as I can tell, the church is not poor in leadership. And there's a lot of people who are never in the pulpit at our church, but are truly leaders, spiritual leaders, men I would imitate. And uh, I don't think by adding a label to them, this is now Elder Smith, this is now Elder Jones, that's what the Mormons do, and they do it with 19-year-old kids, because you'd never guess they were an elder unless you read it on their label, because they don't look very old. But, uh, you know, they have to put the label, Elder Smith. Well, why are you Elder Smith? Well, you know, every 19-year-old Mormon who didn't apostatize from the church is an elder. Well, that's not really a biblical concept of an elder. But, but there are men in, in the fellowship that I'm in and, and elsewhere who are truly elders. I, I, don't, I could name certain men in our fellowship and everyone who knows them would say, well, of course. Oh, yeah, I mean, if there's any elders, that's, that's an elder. But what would it add to give them a label? to give them an office. 
I don't think it would add anything. Now, maybe there's some things come to your mind uh, that it would add. I don't think it would add much good. Now, I realize I've gone over time, Tom. I, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I, I'm going to take the liberty to go just a little further here if I could. It is important to note that the Bible does have some passages that say submit to and obey persons and those people are said to have the rule over you and to be over you in the Lord. That sounds very political to me. If someone is over me in the Lord, someone is a ruler over me in the Lord and I'm to submit and obey them, that strikes me as sounding very political. And it sounds very political because the words that were traditionally used to translate the Greek words were translated in the context of the Anglican Church. That's where the King James Bible came from, in the, from, from the Anglican Church, which is a very political organization. And I'm not saying the translators did uh, an un, I don't, I'm not saying they were dishonest. I'm just saying that they saw through the grid of their time. And they interpreted certain words that way. When they saw the word overseer, they translated bishop. I'm not sure why. Uh, what does bishop mean? No one knows except that it's an office in the church. Overseer is quite descriptive, and that's the right word from the Greek. But, but here's, let me, let me show you uh, some of the scriptures that might catch in your craw when, when I suggest I don't think the elders had political authority. Well, what about these places where it seems like they did? What about 1 Peter 5.5? 5? We're told to submit to elders. 1 Peter actually addresses the elders in chapter 5 in the first four verses, and then it turns to the rest of us who are not the elders. And in 1 Peter 5, 5 it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Okay. Now, if you have to submit to these elders, doesn't that mean they're kind of uh, the boss? Well, read on. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, I'm supposed to submit to the elders and I'm also submit to everyone else. And who am I who have to submit to the elders? I'm the youngers. You younger people submit to the older people. Actually, the fact that it says you younger people suggests that when it says elders, it doesn't even necessarily mean political elders at all because they might not have had such in the church. The older men. You younger men submit to the older men. In fact, be submissive to everybody. That's, that's the Christian spirit. Now, that doesn't sound like the elders had some particular political authority that submitting to them you know, was a deference to an office they held necessarily. It might well be deference to their age or deference to their character, but, but deference to an office, I don't see it there. In Hebrews, this is probably the most important one that people will think of. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your soul. Now, obey them and be submissive to who? those who have the rule over you. Well, okay. Obey them and be submissive. What, in everything? If, if they tell me to come over on my weekend and wash their car, do I have to do that? I mean, do these guys have uh, absolute authority or what? I mean, what am I supposed to obey about them or submit to about them? Well, he's already told us ten verses earlier. He mentions the same people in verse 7. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. That's the ones who rule over me. Is the ones who speak the word of God to me. Should I obey them? Absolutely. If they're doing what they're doing. If they're speaking the word of God to me, of course I have to obey them. Jesus said to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That was actually a seat in the synagogue on the platform where they expounded the law, the word of God. He says, therefore, everything they tell you to do, do that. But don't follow their example. In other words, if they're teaching the Word of God, then obey them. I mean, they, they may be worthless 
uh, as examples. They're on spiritual, they may not even know God, but if they're teaching the Word of God faithfully, they'll obey what they say, do what they say. Same thing in the church. The, those who rule over you are those who speak the Word of God to you. Obey that. Obey them when they're doing that. If they're not speaking the Word of God to you, there's nothing really that they carry in terms of uh, absolute authority that extends beyond their role as teaching the Word of God. I submit to the Word of God. Now, if you feel that you need to submit to an office holder because he holds an office, that's fine. You can do that if you, if you haven't come to see it the way I have. Uh, I just don't see biblically that that is how it is meant. I believe that the leaders faithfully teach the Word, and as they do, you do what they said. That is, you do what the Word says, what they say. You don't have to follow their interpretation if they're not very good at interpreting, and you certainly don't have to follow their own opinions if they go beyond the Scripture, but you do have to obey the Word that they teach, and that's what they're principally there for. Now, the word rule, who have the rule over you in these verses, it actually occurs three times in Hebrews 13. In verse 7, we saw it in verse 17. It's also there in verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you. Who are these people who rule over you? Well, I dare say it must be a reference to the elders since we know of no other kind of church leadership. But what about this word rule? Doesn't that sound political? It sounds very political. But the Greek word doesn't. The Greek word that is found here is the word hegiomai. And if you look that up in Vine's Dictionary, a very common source, or Lexicons, or Strong's Concordance, you'll find that hegiomai means to lead. Now, to my mind, the word to lead is different in connotation than the word to rule. I can lead somebody without being their ruler. It's an unfortunate translation that these verses say, those who rule over you. They, that's not right. In the Greek it says, remember those who lead you, your leaders. Obey them. Okay, why? Because they speak the Word of God to you. There are people who are leaders. They can be leaders with or without a political office to tell us they're leaders. I know who my leaders are and none of them hold any office in the church, in any church. But I, but I certainly have people I follow. There are people who speak the Word of God to me and I revere it and I obey it. And their example is an example to me. They are my leaders. And they don't have to be part of an ecclesiastical institution to be a leader. In fact, most of the churches I've been in that have that kind of leaders have not been very faithful in teaching the Word of God or being examples. If I had made them my leaders, I'd be a very different kind of Christian than I am today. Maybe some things I'd be better, but I don't think it'd be better. I, I, frankly, leading is not the same thing as ruling. Now, likewise, there's a gift that in the King James is called the gift of ruling. Those who rule with diligence in Romans 12.8. The same word that is used there is found in 1 Timothy 3, 4. It says the elder must be one who rules his family well. And it is also the same word in, he, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, which says the elders who rule well should be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. It is also the same Greek word that's found in the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, where it says, remember those who, have, who are over you in the Lord. Remember that one? We read that earlier. Those who are over you in the Lord. Same Greek word in all these passages. It's the word proistemi. Very, very strange that it would ever be translated over you in the Lord. Pro means before, and stemi is the Greek word for stand. Literally, proistemi means the one who stands before you. That's the literal meaning. You can look it up in any Greek source you want. When it says, who have the gift of ruling, actually proistemi is the gift of standing before or presiding is another translation that's given. Uh, honor those who stand before you. He's talking, of course, about those who stand up and teach the Word of God. He's talking about the elders. But the important thing is that Paul and these other writers don't use words that sound like rule. They use words that sound like 
lead. They lead you. They stand before you. It, it doesn't say anything about politics or authority, top-down kind of stuff at all. It's just talking about those who come before you as God's messengers, who teach the Word of God to you, who provide an example to you. Honor that, he says. You know, honor that. Appreciate that. Submit to them. All of that's very good. I certainly agree with that. Well, what does it mean to ordain elders then? I mean, the Bible does say ordain, but again, maybe not a good translation. The word ordain is kathistomy, which means to appoint a person to a position. Okay, fair enough. There are people that Paul appointed to the position of elder. Position, yes. Office has different connotations. I think. Maybe you don't, but I do. Vine, who may have been influenced by the fact that he was Plymouth Brethren, but still his, his work is considered authoritative. <laughs> when he talked about the ordaining of elders, see, Plymouth Brethren don't do that. Uh, but he said this word, kathistomy, means to appoint a person to a position. And he says, quote, not a formal ecclesiastical ordination, but appointment for the recognition of the churches of those who had already been raised up and qualified by the Holy Spirit. I can't disagree with that. I don't know Greek better than W.E. Vine. In fact, I know it far less than almost anyone. But um, basically, to appoint elders did happen sometimes. It didn't happen all the time. We read in Acts 14 that Paul ordained elders in every city. And he told Titus to ordain every elders in every city in, in Crete. Apart from that, we don't read of any a blanket command that elders must be appointed first thing everywhere. Uh, those churches in which elders were appointed in those passages existed as churches for some period of time before elders came to be appointed there. Obviously, it was not the presence of appointed elders that made them legitimate churches. They were legitimate churches already. A time came in those cases where it was right to appoint elders. Why? I don't know. Maybe it was done in all churches. We don't know that it was. But we do know this. In Corinth, as I said, it wasn't so much that they had appointed elders. Or they just said, there's a household of people who are addicted to serving people just... Submit to people like that. Or in Third John, where he says, now this guy Diotrephes, he tries to take over everything, but this guy Demetrius, he's good. Follow his example, not his. There's no indication that these men were elders or office holders. There does seem to be evidence that some churches had leaders who didn't hold any appointed office necessarily. Even when Paul said in Thessalonians, remember those who, who, who stand before you and appreciate them for their work's sake. He didn't say whether or not they were elders. He doesn't mention whether the church in Thessalonica had appointed elders. They might have. The point is this. Churches do not lack for leadership whether they have it appointed or not. There are times, however, when appointing leaders was done. Whether this is always a good idea or not is, is not stated in Scripture. We will say this. If we would ask the question, when should elders be appointed? That would be very relevant to the church I'm attending right now. When should elders be appointed? Now, one thing Paul says in the negative, he says, not too hastily. He says that in 1 Timothy 5.22. He says, do not lay hands hastily on anyone. He means don't ordain elders in the context, hastily. What's hastily? How do we know it's being done too soon? How do we know when it's time? Well, I would give you a very common sense rule, and if you can find a biblical reason to find a better rule, that's fine with me. But let me suggest this. It seems to me biblical enough to say elders should be appointed when they're needed and when they're available. Now, these are two very important conditions. The first time any leaders of any kind were appointed in the church of Jerusalem was when they were discovered to be needed in Acts chapter 6. When the apostles found they had too much work on their hands, things were getting neglected, there were complaints about the distribution, they said, hey, 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 we better appoint some guys to oversee this. Now, until then, it wasn't a problem, so they didn't think about it. But when a problem arose, 
And they said, okay, the solution to this problem is to appoint these seven men here. Well, then that was the time to do it. They didn't think of doing it before that. And it's very probable that the appointment of elders in the churches in Crete, in Titus, was for the very reason that Paul said it was. He says, you've got to appoint men who can do this because there are many who've come in teaching false doctrines. Okay, well, that could be a serious problem. Nobody in the church has their own Bible. There's several guys in the church who are pretty charismatic and outspoken, and some of them are teaching false doctrines. Some of them aren't, but some are. And the average sheep says, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to know? And Paul says, Titus, you go in there for me and you point out the guys who are good. You appoint these guys to be the ones who do the teaching of the church and these guys, they shouldn't be doing it. There was a need for it. Now, maybe there's a need now. Maybe there's need, maybe there's not. I mean, that has to be determined. But I believe that the policy of the early church about this was if it's not broken, don't fix it. If you need it, appoint it. If things go well enough without it, what argument can be made for appointing it? The other thing is, if they're available. Not every church I've been in has people who qualify according to the biblical qualifications, but most people appoint elders anyway just because what's a church without elders? What's an institutional church without appointed elders, in other words? But the church is the body of Jesus Christ. The flock of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. That's what the church is, with or without appointed elders. Appointed elders can serve a good purpose. But I would suggest to you, and you don't have to follow me in this, that even when an elder is appointed, it should not be assumed that when he's out, we need to replace him with another one, because it may be that it's an ad hoc committee, as it were. There's a problem in the church. We need to appoint someone to clear this up. That can be a good thing to do. That can be the right thing to do. But once the problem's gone, do we have to perpetuate the machine the same way? Or can we say, let's go back to the way it was, like in the book of Judges, you know? Okay, we got the thing fixed. Judge did his job. He's gone. Next time we need one, God will send another one. You know? I mean, I know this sounds very iconoclastic and very radical, but frankly, I think the church needs radical surgery. I think there's some serious problems with the church the way it's been done, and I think going back to biblical ways is better. I've gone way over time, but let me very quickly run through reasons not to lay hands hastily on anyone. That is not to appoint elders too soon. And I'm thinking in particular (coughs) reasons not to move toward an ordained eldership prematurely or unnecessarily. There may be times when it's the right thing to do and when it's not premature and it has to be done. But I, I think instead of doing it routinely, automatically, I think we need to make sure that it's really the right time, that it's really needed and the right men are in place. Let me give you several reasons I can think of biblically why not to ordain elders just automatically just because they're lacking or because they're not there. One, appointment of elders doesn't create leaders. It only gives them formal recognition. That is, there may be leaders who are already doing just fine without any appointment. And if you appoint some, that doesn't mean you now have leaders where you didn't before. It just means you now have recognized which ones are there. But many times they're not hard to recognize with or without an appointment. I mean, it's, it's easy enough to tell in many cases who's to be followed. When it's not clear because there's heresy or there's problems or some bad leaders, then you have to make some appointments. Who's, who's good? You know, these are the guys we're going to listen to, not those ones. But if, until that problem arises... Uh, appointing elders doesn't, doesn't create leadership where there wasn't leadership. If it does, then you've got artificial leadership. If God provides real leadership, it'll be there before any are appointed, and it may well function just fine without appointment for a long time or maybe forever in some cases. Another thing, real leaders will do the work of leading, and the real sheep will recognize them with or without a label. That is, if a guy won't take the lead until he's made an, an elder, given an office, then he's no leader. Real leaders that God raises up will already be leading. And the real sheep will know who they're supposed to follow in most cases. 
there might be some confusion in some cases, but in most cases, um, I've been outside of institutional churches quite a bit. I've never had any trouble finding who is a good example for me to follow, who I should listen to, who's a good leader, who's a bad leader. I don't need a label on him to tell me that. God can tell me that. Uh, sometimes I might not know, and then I'll need someone else to tell me that. C, our third point. The apostles seem to have a policy of appointing leaders when required by circumstances. I already made that point. If those circumstances don't demand it now, there's not a very good argument for appointing them yet. Another point. Although the apostles appointed elders, perhaps because the sheep had no Bibles, uh, or there was confusion over who was really qualified to lead, valid assemblies had functioning leaders even without formal appointment. That is, Eldership is the only form of church government that we ever find appointed. But it's not the only form of church government in the Bible. It's just the only kind that it was ever appointed. Before the appointment, there was already church. And there was already leadership in the church. They just weren't appointed leaders. So you've got the household of Stephanus and people like that in Corinth. You've got people like Demetrius over in uh, Gaius' town. And you've got other examples, the people in Thessalonica who were overseen, but they're not told whether we're not told that they were elders, they may have been. All, all I'm saying is before elders were appointed there were still leaders. They just weren't appointed leaders and and uh, the time came in many cases where they had to be appointed. Other times we don't know whether they were or not. Leaders' attitudes often change when given political offices. That's another reason not to be hasty about it. There are people who are quite humble servant leaders until you give them an office. And it's not so much that it goes to their head as that as soon as you give someone something that looks like an office, they, they interpret their duty and their responsibility more in political terms. They say, okay, I'm, now I'm officially a leader. Now I've got to make these people follow me. You know? I mean, I, I'm a failure as a leader if no one's following me. Well, I mean, you know, people get, not always, but many times, people who were doing just fine leading, you know, humbly and without any prestige attached, without any label attached, you give them a label and many times they're a different person. And you've got a different thing than you had before in that person. You've got somebody who thinks it's his duty to rule. And it's hard for many people to get that out of their head. It's much nicer when they don't have that confusion. And that confusion is caused, in my opinion, by appointing leaders in many cases. Even if the leader doesn't change, people's view of him often will. In other words, there are brothers in this congregation here who don't have any office because no one in this congregation has an office. And everyone relates quite freely and everyone, you know, takes advice from everybody about equally well. I mean, imagine, you make a few of these guys the leaders, suddenly, you know, the sheep will look to this person as something different. His opinions will somehow be more ex-cathedra than that of the Joe Schmo who wasn't appointed as the leader. I mean, the, uh, it's just ingrained in people's fallen nature to politicize what is spiritual. And when it's, only, when it's not appointed, it's got to be just spiritual. You make appointments, suddenly you've got the po- potential for politics and either the leader's attitude is going to change or the people's attitude toward him is going to change or both in many cases. Maybe there's some exceptions where that doesn't happen. <clears throat> Another thing, appointment of elders typically centralizes the work of ministry to a few. Before you have elders, everybody's doing the ministry. It's no one in particular's job. It's everybody's job. It's the whole body of Christ's job to minister to everybody else. You appoint elders, suddenly you've got the elite class of professionals. I mean, they may not be very professional, but the idea is, it's their job now. I mean, church has needs, that's what we pay them for. If we don't pay them, that's what they're supposed to do. They're appointed, they're volunteers. But the fact is, suddenly the work of the church falls on the shoulders of an elite group instead of on the whole body of Christ as it was before. Another argument, when there is an office of leadership, it gives the ambitious 
something for which to aspire without possessing authentic spiritual leadership from God. Now, hear me on this. In a church where there's no official eldership, suppose some kind of a ambitious, power-hungry heretic comes in and wants to take over the church. What is there to take over? What can he do? Suppose I was a heretic. Some might think that may not be far from the truth, but suppose I was an ambitious heretic who wanted to take over this church. What could I do? Well, the most I could do in a non-political entity like this would uh, maybe influence from the pulpit. But suppose the brothers who invite me to speak discern, I don't think he's really speaking true anywhere. What can they do? They just say, well, we're not going to ask him to preach anymore. Well, I can't force my way into the pulpit if Chris Graves is already standing there or Steve Boss Roberts or someone else. I mean, there's nothing I can do to take over because there's nothing political for me to grab onto. The only way I can have any real influence in a non-political church structure is by really being spiritual. I mean, by being a real spiritual leader. In which case, I don't need a political office. If I am a spiritual leader, then I can be a spiritual leader without the office. But you, you make an office, and then those people who aren't real spiritual leaders but are just power-hungry, they have something to aim at. That's where I want to get. There's some offices there. That guy's going to be retiring sooner. He's old. He's going to be gone. I'm going to, go, I'm going to get there. And I've known many, many people in churches who they're not spiritual-minded, but they're, they're power-hungry, and there's an eldership, and that's what they aim at. I'm going to get on that board. I'm going to get on that eldership, and I'm going to have my way. If there's no eldership, what can they aim at? They have to actually just be spiritual to have any influence. Uh, it seems to me a political structure is something that can be corrupted. If it doesn't start out corrupt, it can be corrupted because the corruptest type of people want those offices. You don't find very many spiritual people who really want to be in charge. It's an aspect of being spiritual that you don't want to be in charge. And when there's a place for those who are in charge, then the people who want to get there are the ones who want to be in charge. It's that simple. And that's what you usually end up with. After a few turnovers in that eldership, suddenly what started out as a spiritual body of men is now a bunch of guys who are playing politics in the church. One last point. Very important. The presence of elders in the church that is, the presence of appointed elders, does not guarantee the safety of the flock from wolves. Now, I understand that this is a concern many people have about a group that doesn't have a leader. What about heresy? What about wolves? What about church discipline? What are you going to do? <clears throat> Who's protecting the flock? Well, I'm pleased to say Jesus is protecting his flock. And if we're concerned that the wolves are going to come, I'll tell you what the solution is not. Appointing guys to political office. You know why? Because sometimes they're the wolves. Jesus was talking, and Paul was talking to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, and he said, well, look at this, and you'll, I mean, it'll make the point eloquently more, more than I could. Paul is, is speaking to the elders of the church. He's not talking to anyone else. It's the group of elders from Ephesus who've come down to confer with him. And notice this that he says to them in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. Paul says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, from among, in the eldership, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. I'll tell you what. You ever seen the Roman Catholic Church? They have bishops. They have eldership. And you know how they became what they became? The church moved from what Jesus left behind when he ascended in heaven into what the Roman Catholic Church became and what most Protestant churches are still a little bit like by becoming institutionalized and politicizing 
the leadership. Once you do that, then the people who want to be in charge know where to go. That's what I'm going to offer. I'm going to campaign for that office. I'm going to be in that position. And the wolves congregate in elderships. Now, I'm not saying you look at any eldership you're going to see a thing full of wolves. I'm just telling you the truth. Look at church history. Look at the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval times. Where are most of the wolves? But in the bishop's office. Some of them are the popes. The worst thing is, though, once they, the wolves are the bishops, how do you get them out then? If a wolf comes into the flock and there's no, no bishops, what's the protection of the church? Jesus Christ is the protection of the church. And there are good leaders in the church who can stand up and decry. Say, That's heresy. That's false. That, that way of life is not ordained by Christ. It's unbiblical. And, and, and the people who are listening, Christ's sheep know His voice and follow Him. They won't follow a hireling. But there are many... You know, sometimes the church gets pruned by the presence of a heretic because the people who aren't His sheep and don't know His voice and do follow the hireling... They weren't in the flock in the first place. They just looked like it. I'm not saying it's a, a, a pleasing thing when people leave the church after some heresy, but Paul did say to the Corinthians, there sometimes have to be divisions among you. Actually, in the King James, says, there have to be heresies among you so that those who are proved may be manifested. I, I would say this. True Christians are going to hear the voice of their true shepherd. And if they start appointing political officers unnecessarily they now have a carnal structure which can be taken over by carnality. And the most carnal members of the congregations are the ones who are going to most want to get into that structure because that's the positions of privilege and power in any institution is the leadership structure. When Christ simply gives the church leaders and the church doesn't feel the need to politicize the office, then wolves can be taken care of a little easier, it seems to me, than when those wolves are the bishops and the elders, as is the case in many religious organizations. And uh, once that's the case, what can you do for the organization? Not much. Just abandon ship and start all over again. But, um, and, and frankly, I think that's what a lot of people I know feel that they've had to do. And they weren't necessarily abandoning the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes it's churches that are a lot better in many respects than the Roman Catholic Church. But a lot of people have just felt like they're abandoning a monster. It's become a monster. What made it a monster? It started out as a group of Christians who loved Jesus. It got institutionalized, politicized. The leaders became political leaders. And it got turned into something really scary in many cases. Now, that obviously... I'm closing with this, this disclaimer. Obviously, my comments probably... It's, some of you probably boy, that guy is mighty jaded. Mighty cynical. I'm afraid I can't deny that. I wish I could. And if by being jaded and cynical, if, if, if that has blurred my vision of the Scripture, if that has uh, given me reasons to want to twist the Scriptures or do something that's not right and, and direct something, that's, uh, the safety is I don't hold any office in any church. And uh, you know if what I'm saying isn't biblical, there's no one in, has any obligation to follow one word that I said. Praise God. But... I do believe that many would agree that whether they agree with everything I said or not, that, that the general teaching of Scripture is more along the lines of the kinds of things that I've been trying to point out than, than really what, what exists more commonly in the institutional churches. If, if you don't agree, that's okay. You have my blessing. I, I've never insisted that people have to agree with me. I don't care. I, I just, but I do feel that this is something Christians need to look at afresh 
the idea of church leadership. It is spiritual leadership that Christ gives. It is not political leadership. Once it's politicized, you've got a carnal institution. It may, it may be, have a lot of godly people in it, but it's to, as an institution, it's man-made now. And as a man-made thing, it usually goes the way of all man-made things. 